Welcome to The Daily Bite. I'm your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. Today we read from Matthew chapter 16. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it amongst themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the five thousand and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the four thousand and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. Historically, this might be one of the most important chapters in all of Scripture in terms of how the history of the church has played out. It is from this chapter that the Catholic Church has built the argument that Peter was the first pope 
and thus the whole thread of popes stretching throughout history. So we'll take a look at that today for sure. But we start out with the Pharisees and Sadducees once again trying to test Jesus. They demand a sign. And again, he rebukes them as he has before, that they can look to the sky and they can discern what the weather will be like. But they can't discern by looking at the world around them. The signs of the times, a, a reference to the, the idea that Jesus has come, the Savior has come, the, the difficulty, the dangers of sin around them, the end of the world. They should be able, with a mature faith, they should be able to do both. They should be able to discern the weather, but they should also be able to discern matters of faith. And they can't. So he calls them evil. He calls them adulterous. And he reminds them what he said back in chapter 12, verses 39 and 40, that they will receive no sign but the sign of Jonah. That is, that he will be three days in the earth, much as Jonah was three days in the belly of the great fish. So that was chapter 12. And really means twice then in the chapter, Jesus is going to foretell his death and resurrection once to the disciples, once here to the Pharisees and scribes. So they reach the other side of the Sea of Galilee, having sailed across it again. wonder how many times they did that in Jesus' ministry. They seem to do it frequently. And the disciples are fighting with each other because they forgot to bring bread along. And Jesus says, watch and beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they mistake this. They seem to believe that Jesus is picking on them for their failure to bring bread. So they're squabbling over this. The idea, basically, whose fault it is, who is at fault for now the fact that they're all going to be hungry, even the master. Jesus is going to be hungry. He's without bread now. And Jesus rebukes them again, Oh, you of little faith, that maybe, just maybe, the Son of Man can provide for you anyway. And I say that sarcastically. Jesus can provide for their needs without anything. He's God. He created bread in the first place. He put manna on the wilderness for the Israelites for 40 years. A gift, a free gift. If he wants to feed them, he can feed them. He doesn't need their help. So, why are you discussing the fact you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? He points them back to the two feeding miracles of the five and the four thousand and how much they had left over. Do you not get it? And after that, they finally recognized that he wasn't talking about bread. He was trying to teach them something else entirely, that they should be aware of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He used the word leaven because as you put leaven into a lump of dough, it leavens the dough. A leavening agent causes it to rise. We use yeast today for that purpose. There have been different ingredients in history, certainly. So it goes through and leavens the whole loaf. The whole bread rises because of it. So it is that the danger of the Pharisees and Sadducees, as they teach, can destroy the faith of many as it spreads throughout the kingdom. 
From there, uh, they go to Caesarea Philippi, which is a few miles northeast of the Lake of Hula. That's the the lake that is north of the Sea of Galilee. If you're if you're looking at a map, there's a little body of water that stretches like a river straight out of the Sea of Galilee to the north and then ends at this new lake. It's much smaller than the Sea of Galilee. That's the Lake of Hula. So Caesarea Philippi, again, just a few miles northeast from there. And the question of this paragraph, and the question really to ask our kids as well, who is Jesus? It's a great question for our kids to be able to learn how to answer because they're going to have to answer it throughout their life as they seek to tell their neighbor about Jesus. Who is he? That's the question Jesus is asking here of his disciples, although he first says, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? The answers range. The disciples say, some say John the Baptist. We know Herod said it back in 14, verse 2. Some say Elijah. This was the prophecy of Malachi 4, verse 5, that God would send Elijah again before the great day of the Lord. That is typically thought of as the end of the world, although it ends up being Jesus says that that was John the Baptist back in chapter 11, verse 14. So the great day is the coming of Christ into this world. Some are saying Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now, Elijah didn't die. He was taken up into heaven by the Lord. But the rest of the prophets all died. John died. So there is a belief amongst the people that God has raised one of these men from the dead and that Jesus is that man. So a little wonky, admittedly. Jesus then turns the question to them, who do you say that I am? And Peter, Simon Peter, is the one to respond with the great confession of faith, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Christ is the Greek word for anointed one, which is the same as the Hebrew word Messiah. So Mashiach in Hebrew, Christos in Greek, mean anointed one, the one who is anointed to be prophet, priest, and king. I mean, that's the three classes they anointed in the Old Testament. Prophets speak God's word to his people. Priests intercede between God and men, offering sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins. And kings, well, they lead, they rule, they care for, provide for. Jesus does all of that for us. He speaks the word of God to us, teaching us into his truth, teaching us of his forgiveness, his life, his salvation. He is our priest as he lays down his own body as the sacrifice to forgive our sins. And he is our king, providing for us, caring for us always, as he was just teaching the disciples. So Simon makes this great confession of faith, and Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon bar Jonah. Bar means son here, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. We cannot learn about God apart from God. Only God himself can teach us about himself. He must make himself known to us. And he has. Again, in Jesus Christ, this is the season of epiphany, by the way, the idea that God has made known to us. It's that epiphanos, lighted upon, quite literally, phanos being to light or to shine, to light upon to make known, to reveal. God has revealed himself to us. This is great news. Now, this is the line that leads to the Roman Catholic Church claiming that Peter is the first pope, 
I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Peter is Greek for rock. So you are Peter, you are rock, and on this rock, so they assume Peter, I will build my church. This is their teaching of the papacy, that there is one man, a lineage that can be traced back to Peter, not necessarily through descendant thing, but through the passing on of the faith, the apostolic succession, as it's called. The biggest problem with that grammatically is that Peter is a masculine noun, right? Petros is the original Greek word. Peter is a man. But when Jesus turns to the next phrase, on this rock I will build my church, the word rock there is not masculine. It's feminine. It's not Petros, it's Petra. In the Lutheran church, we make the the claim that this then is a confession of faith. It's not the rock that he's going to build his church on isn't Peter, the man. But the confession Peter just said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus is going to build his church on solid confession. On himself. And that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, gates of hell, by the way, is maybe not understood fully. The city gate is where most of the city's business occurs. And by that, I mean like, political conversations as the ruling men of the city meet together and decide the important matters of how to care for the people there. And that would include matters of war. So hell here pictured like a city that the leaders of hell would gather together and and discuss how to destroy the church. But they can't because the church is built on the foundation that is Jesus Christ and his righteousness and Satan tries, he might, cannot defeat Jesus. He thought he did on the cross, but it proved to be his own demise, his own undoing. Satan is now bound. Verse 19 is extremely important as well. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This has been called in the Lutheran Church the Office of the Keys, the Office of the Ministry, the Office of the Public Ministry. There's different phrases there. Office of the Keys is the one you probably recognize from your small catechism. Another key verse there is John 20, verses 22 and 23. Essentially, a key, when you think of a key in a door, it unlocks or it locks. And so the keys that God has given to his church are the locking and the unlocking of our sin. Thus, forgiving or retaining forgiveness. Is the sin forgiven or is the sin not forgiven? The language here in Greek would literally translate out will be having been bound in heaven. That's really clunky in English, so English tries to straighten it out, but I think we've harmed ourselves maybe in the straightening out of the, the, the words. That the key will be having been bound in heaven does not mean that Peter and other disciples, and now today the pastors, have the authority to 
on their own declare that your sin is unforgiven or on their own declare that your sin is forgiven. It will be having been bound. Notice the having been passive, already done. Your sin is either already going to be forgiven, already forgiven by Jesus, or your unrepentance of that sin is already bound in heaven before the Lord. He works through the pastor to then declare that unto you. I, as a pastor, do not have the authority in my own right to decide if your sin is forgiven or not. That is Jesus. But Jesus works through me to declare unto you the good news that your sin is forgiven. This isn't a power trip, pastors. We are but servants. And we declare good news. But we also point our neighbor to the looming disaster if they fail to repent of their own sin. Essentially, Jesus here gives the keys to the church, to all of his people. And the church then gives the keys to a pastor. They call a man into this office so that they know that someone is always looking after this, so that they know the ball is not going to be dropped, to use a sports cliche. Somebody's looking after me. Somebody's looking after my family. Somebody's looking after all of our families that gather here in this place. Our pastor. He's going to preach God's word to us faithfully. He's going to share the forgiveness of sins that Jesus won for us on the cross. And when the devil is using those things of my guilt and my sin to cause me to despair and to doubt, my pastor is going to reassure me by speaking those great words of absolution to me again and again, reminding me that Jesus Christ has forgiven me and that this is most certainly true. He tells them not to tell anyone that he is the Christ. Not now, not yet. Right after his resurrection from the dead, they go and tell everyone as they should. But for the moment, so that he can continue to travel and preach and teach and do what he needs to do, they are going to keep that bit to themselves. Jesus will three times foretell his death and resurrection to his disciples. This comes out of Isaiah 52 and 53, one of the servant songs of the Old Testament, Isaiah, that he's going to be killed. And on the third day, He'll rise from the dead. He'll be raised. God the Father raises him from the dead. He'll tell this three times. And the disciples never, uh, they never seem to catch the last bit of that. They never focus on the resurrection. They're always angered or confused by the idea that he would die. That's not the Messiah that they're looking for. We'll come back to that in a moment. They miss the resurrection idea. So Peter, at this, rebukes Jesus. Keep that in mind. He rebukes the Son of the living God. This shall never happen to you. Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Remember how the Roman Catholic Church uses the phrase in the verses just before this to say that Simon is the first pope? If he's the first pope, what is his first act as pope? It is to reject Jesus Christ and to reject his death and his resurrection and to be rebuked by Jesus and called Satan. Peter's not the first pope. Jesus isn't setting him up to be, at least. 
Peter is not thinking about the way God plans to do it. He's thinking about his own way of doing things. This is, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. You can ask your children here, what's the difference? Well, the problem is that men expect Jesus to be the earthly champion. They're looking at the fact that he can calm a storm, meaning he can control the weather. When we get into a battle with Roman soldiers, he can call on the weather from above, and he can change the tide of battle by striking them down with lightning. That's the kind of thought that must be rumbling through their minds right now. They expect a military conquering champion. And that's not at all the plan God has. He's come to die. And they just can't see it. So he continues that idea by then calling them into that himself. To follow him. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow Jesus. Join him. Deny yourself. Don't think of being saved in this life. Don't think of a better life now. Be willing to lose this life in order to have a life that never ends. We know this to be paradise. But again, our sinful nature, tempted by these things all the time. We want to live a long life here. We want wealth and health and prosperity here. We want to be happy here. And those things so often interfere and cause us not to be able to discern the signs of the times, as Jesus said to the Pharisees before in the chapter. We get lost, caught up in our sinful nature, and stop focusing on the things of God. But what can man give in return for his soul? Even if you could become richer than the richest men of the age, even if you could somehow acquire every ounce of wealth in this world, it would not be enough to buy your ticket to paradise. It would not be enough to pay for your sins against God, to undo your rebellion against the king. I cannot save myself. What good is it to me to gain the whole world if I lose my soul? That's the warning. Jesus is going to come again. Notice that second coming here in verse 27 already. At which point he will repay each person according to what he has done. We talk about that in light of our faith. Did we trust in Christ or not? We'll see more of that as the book progresses, especially into chapter 25. Some are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. That could easily be a reference to Jesus' death and his resurrection, that they would see him. Thus Pentecost, the growth of his church, that is the coming of his kingdom, right? As it comes to us, as we're welcomed into it. In that case, only Judas Iscariot of the Twelve doesn't make it to see those, those moments.